Well, good morning, everyone. And welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. For anyone who's new, my name is Curtis Rogers, and I'm an intern uh, here at Calvary and Mile One Mission. Oh, it's good to be with you this morning as we worship God together. And I'm going to be continuing the sermon series that the interns have been going through in the book of Galatians. But it's been a little while since the last time we looked at Galatians together, I believe not since the winter. Uh, So just as a recap of the book as a whole, this was a book written by Paul to churches in an area known as Galatia, which is basically in modern day Turkey. And the church of Galatia is special to Paul because he was the one that first preached the gospel to them. He told them about Jesus and how he came to die for sinners. But since Paul has left, other people have come into Galatia to distort and twist the gospel that Paul first preached. Many people think that they were Jewish Christians who thought that in order to be a Christian, it's necessary to obey all of the Jewish law. Um, These people were called Judaizers, and they started pressuring Gentile or non-Jewish Christians to get circumcised and begin keeping parts of the Torah or Jewish law. In other words, they were teaching a gospel that was Jesus plus something else, plus Jewish dietary restrictions, plus circumcision, plus all these extra things and check boxes that needed to be accomplished. Whereas the gospel that Paul preached was simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this is basically Paul's reason for writing in order to correct and to point the Galatian Christians back to Christ. And so with that context, in front of us. Uh, That's why I've titled my sermon, We Never Graduate from the Gospel. We Never Graduate from the Gospel. There never comes a point in which we are mature enough or strong enough or intelligent enough that we don't need Christ, that we don't need to depend on him entirely. Our church has a men's Bible study that we host at 6.30 a.m., believe it or not, on Tuesday mornings. And this past Tuesday, we were talking about control and how we often sinfully desire control because ultimately, we don't trust God. And Pastor Steve played a little video for us of a sermon uh, that another pastor had given. And the men that were there will, will know where I'm going with this. But the pastor in the video told a story about how he was traveling one time in one of those really small bush planes. And it was just him and his friend, and the pilot. And so far, everything's going well as they sort of taxi out and take off. But as they start to go through the clouds, there's some type of medical emergency, and the pilot passes out. He goes unconscious. And and so these two guys are left in the plane with no flight experience, no pilot, and unless they do something, that plane is going to crash, and all three of them will die. And so the first thing they do is get on the radio and start asking for help. Finally, they get in touch with an air traffic controller and they explain the situation to him. And he says to the two guys in the plane, my job is to bring you home. He says, my job is to bring you home, but the only way that's going to happen is if you listen to my voice. Now you're about an hour to the nearest airport and there's a storm ahead of you. And if you don't listen to my voice, if you start worrying about the storm outside or or if you panic, or if you forget my voice, you're, you're going to die. 
And the only way you're going to get home safe is if you follow my voice. And so the pastor goes on to use this story to say simply this, that so many things cause us to take our eyes off of Christ, cause us to forget and even ignore his voice, and they are worthless things. But as the story continued, the pastor goes on to say that the air traffic controller's voice on the other end of the radio helped guide him through the storm, line up the plane with the runway, make his descent, and ultimately land that plane. And after the whole ordeal the air traffic controller met in person, the pastor who landed the plane and, and said to him, thanks for listening to my voice. He said, I've had people before in planes that do not listen. Either they, they get scared looking at the storm outside or they get anxious and instead of trusting my voice and relying on me, they panic and start relying on themselves and they end up crashing and burning. And this is why we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel because there never comes a moment when we can stop listening to God's voice. There never comes a moment when we're able to guide the plane ourselves. I mean, how foolish is it for a person with no flight experience to think that he knows better than the expert? And so often we become so self-reliant instead of Christ-reliant, that we can end up crashing the plane. And so those are really my two points for today, two things that I want to contrast, self-reliance and Christ-reliance. Self-reliance versus Christ-reliance. And so let's go back to our text that John read out for us. Verse 1 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And he starts off pretty strong there, saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Clearly, Paul is frustrated, and he's accusing the Galatian Christians of being led astray, as if someone has them under a type of spell, bewitched. He says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what he means by this is not that they were physically there, you know, when Jesus was crucified historically, but what he means is that Paul came to Galatia and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He explained it to them, showed them why it was necessary for them, said that Jesus died for them. And so they ought to know. By the way, if you're here today and, and you don't know what I mean when I say gospel, or perhaps you have some sort of vague idea but are not really 100%, that's okay. Um, but this is what I mean. The gospel is that in the beginning, God created a perfect world and created man and woman in his image. But we rebelled against God and fell into sin. All of us have sinned. All of us here today are by nature sinners. Hey, I... I, I Shouldn't have to argue that one very much. Just look at the world around you to see the effect of sin. And because God is righteous and just and perfect, he must, by virtue of him being just, punish sin. And the punishment for sin is hell. Eternal separation from God and hell. That's just biblical, clear as day. That's what we all deserve. That's the bad news. 
here's the good news, which is what the word gospel means. The good news is that Jesus Christ, who is God, came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. The punishment that we deserved, he bore himself. And so now eternal life and reconciliation with God himself is made available to anybody who trusts in Jesus as their savior. That's the hope we have. That's why we're gathered here today at church. That's why we worship. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And it's the same gospel that Paul preached to these Galatians. It's not about your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. That means nothing. It's not about keeping a list of commandments. None of us can reach God by doing that because we're all by nature sinners. Rather, it is simply by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, that we are reconciled to God. I'll say it again. Grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, that we are reconciled to God. But these Galatian people have been deceived by others into thinking that they missed something. They thought, surely there must be some law to keep. Once God has saved me, well, then isn't it all up to me now? What what do I need to do? It's not because God has already done everything on your behalf. That's why Paul says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's telling them, do you guys not remember that Jesus died? He says, do you not remember that Jesus and endured the suffering and the humiliation of crucifixion? That wasn't for nothing. That was for you. Jesus really died for you. So how can you turn around and say, well, that wasn't enough. Must be something I need to do. Church, there's nothing more conceited and vain as to think that we can somehow impress God with our works and our deeds and our stuff. Well, this is what was happening in Galatia. And if we keep reading in the text, Paul says, let me ask you only this. In verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Listen to Paul's argument here. This is where he gives a list of rhetorical questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is faith. Well, then, having begun by the Spirit, he says, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, the obvious answer is no. So Paul knows that he's addressing a group of Christians, as one writer notes, because it says they've already received the Holy Spirit. They've begun by the Spirit. The problem is, though they've trusted in Jesus for their salvation, now they think that for the rest of their lives, it's, it's up to them. They're on their own. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, your dependence on Jesus did not stop after you, quote unquote, got saved. Rather, your need for absolute dependence on him is required for the rest of your life. For the Galatians, they let things like the Jewish law and circumcision deceive them into taking their eyes off of Christ and stop listening to his voice. But church, where do we today take our eyes off of Christ? Where do we stop listening to his voice? Where do we switch from being Christ-reliant 
to being self-reliant. And this ultimately comes down to our understanding of who God is and who we are. There's a reason Paul says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus died for me, for you. That's why Paul says, did you suffer so many things in vain? Because if we're going to look inward upon ourselves rather than upwards towards Christ, we make the crucifixion of Christ mean nothing. You cannot add anything to the gospel. It's like Paul says in Galatians 2, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We're here on church on Sunday for no purpose, if that's the case. Yet how often do we forget that Jesus really died? And how often do we need to be reminded of the cross and what it accomplished? We take it for granted, but Jesus actually really died for us. We should be reminded by that song that we sing, right? I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my savior on that cursed tree. That's what it took to save sinners like us. It took the death of God's own son. Nothing, anything less than that could not accomplish that. So if there was some way we could earn our way to God, Jesus would not have had to come and die. But he did. And so what a mockery I make, we make of the gospel when all of us take our eyes off of the beauty of that and instead direct them to things that are fickle, worthless, and short-lived, and so much lesser than the beauty of Christ. And so the same question Paul asked the Galatians 2,000 years ago is the same one that needs to be asked of you and me today. Do we see his wounds? Are we reminded of his suffering? That he was crucified? Or have we forgotten? Church, we never graduate from the gospel. It didn't stop at salvation, but we must always be reminded. So to come back again, where do we switch from being Christ-reliant to being self-reliant? In our Tuesday morning men's group, we're going through a series that's talking about the root causes of our sin. Because you see, like an iceberg, there's sin that we see on the surface, and that really is only 10% of the problem, but beneath the surface is where 90% of the iceberg is. And so if we take the sin you know, of anger, for example, impatience, angry outbursts, rage, as men in our Bible study, we're learning that those outbursts are really just symptoms of the root cause. And that root cause is control. I mean, ultimately, the root cause for everything is sin, but, but beneath the anger is control. And when we want control, what that really means is that we don't trust God. So we try to be our own God. We're the ones that want to be in control. So when we lose control of a situation, our first response is one of fear. We fear that we're no longer in control. Control and fear, 90% of that iceberg. That's beneath the surface. But our self-defense mechanism for our own insecurities and the thing that gets seen is our anger. And that's one of many examples I could give, but it shows how quickly we go from singing about faith and trust in Jesus on the Sunday morning 
to, I don't really trust God, I'm just going to deal with this on my own, later on that night. Tom Schreiner has a great quote that says, as Christians, we need to relearn the gospel every day. We are prone to wander, as the old hymn says, and hence we may act as if a spell has been cast over us. The Christian life is a battle to rely on the gospel. And even as Christians, we are inclined to look to ourselves and trust in our own achievements rather than relying solely on the cross of Christ. We may slowly drift from the gospel just as the Galatians did. The problems Paul addressed in Galatia remind us all that the Christian life cannot be lived on autopilot, that there is a daily struggle to grasp the gospel. That's why we have a, a liturgy in this church, by the way. It's not a ritual that we do, some sort of traditional thing that just exists. We don't know where, why. You know, it exists for a reason. It's to remind us of the gospel. Right? Our call to worship focuses on who God is. Our confession focuses on we need to confess our sin, our assurance. Because Christ died, we're assured of salvation. And we leave here the benediction, reminded, worshiping God. That's our response to everything that Christ has done for us. So there's a reason for that. About a couple years ago now, Celeste gave me this book for Christmas, um, and it was called Good and Angry. Good and Angry. Because she, she knew I, that I had a tendency to be quite impatient when things didn't go my way. She probably remembers uh, the time I lost the button on my military uniform and couldn't find it anywhere, um, and had an event to go to right away, and so proceeded to kick my bedroom door in, or the many outbursts in a vehicle, um, which are numerous. Meanwhile, Celeste is the type of person that avoids honking her horn, or barping the horn, as we say in Newfoundland, at all costs. Um, but if she ever has to barp her horn for some reason, she then feels bad for the other person for doing so. <laughs> um, needless to say, uh, she saw this problem in me and thought this little book could help. And, and actually, it, it did. And there was nothing fluffy in there, no, like superficial. You just need to relax and control your breathing and think of a favorite memory. Like, nothing foolish like that. Rather, here was the premise that was theologically rooted. When you get angry, as I often did, it's really because you want control. And when you want control, it's really because you want to be God. You want to be your own God. You don't realize that everything that has been given to you is purely by the grace of God. So when we realize that, it actually should give us a sense of humility. Because we've been given nothing that we do deserve and everything we don't. What we do deserve is hell, yet God has given us breath in our lungs. I mean, forget about the traffic or, or the things that you lost and can't find anywhere. The very fact that you are breathing is nothing short of a miracle from God. You deserve hell, but God chose to save you. And so that, that's the premise of the book. And what I realized ultimately is that my sin of anger was really my failure to be reminded of the gospel. Ask yourself even right now, where in your life do you most struggle to grasp the gospel? 
How often do we affirm that we believe in the grace of God yet fail to see its full application? Do you try to to build up your spiritual resume? You know, think we're better than someone else because of a position or title or church involvement or volunteering or anything like that? Or here's another example. How many of you, after falling into the same sin that you always fall for, think that you can actually run back to God right away? I mean, again and again and again, and there's no limit. Because if we're honest, a lot of the times I don't end up thinking that. But Paul Washer said one time, we think that we cannot go back to God again and again and again. Constantly with the same sin, because isn't that treating God like a forgiveness machine? Isn't that abusing the grace of God? No, it's being biblical. It's being biblical. Calvary, it's not abusing of the grace of God to repent. It's no wonder, isn't it, that the Apostle Paul would say, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Because the world just looks at this and thinks, what a bunch of foolishness. You know, what about the murderer? Can God just forgive anybody that asks for it? Yes, and he does. He forgave you. I mean, I think of that thief on the cross. I mean, all his life was in rebellion against God until the last moments of his death. And all he says is, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that, that sermon, uh, that video that went around, I don't know if, how many of you have seen it of Alistair Begg. When, when the, he, he imagines, like, what was it like when that guy on the, on the cross got to heaven and, and somebody asked him, you know, how, how'd you get in here? Do you, what about the doctrine of justification? Do you believe in that? Like, I don't know what that is. Or the doctrine of scripture? And he says, I don't know about that. Like, I don't understand. Like, how'd you, how'd you make it here? And, and his only answer was, the man on the cross said, I can come. Because it wasn't about his merit It was the fact that he went to Christ with nothing to offer, empty hands, and just said, Lord, remember me. Church, as Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Now, in his sermon, Paul Washer went on to give a caution, you know, saying all this, we emphasize grace, but there's a caution because, you know, You're walking down a road, there's two ditches, two extremes that you can fall into. So there's a caution here. If you think, well, well, if God's that good, I'll just keep enjoying my sin and go back to God for forgiveness all the time. You know, what a great deal that is. Perfect. Well, that mentality demonstrates that you do not know Jesus. Because the Christian, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, hates his or her sin. But if you do know Christ... And you feel, as, as I often felt as a teenager, um, you know, there are sins that have tempted me and will tempt me for the rest of my life. But there were specific things that seriously enslaved me as a teenager. And so often, after committing this, the same sin again and again, and after feeling like Paul felt in Romans 7, saying, Lord, why do I keep doing these things that I hate? I would think, well, I can't go back to God right now. 
Not right away. I need to build up to that. Take a couple days. Read through my Bible. Maybe read David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. You know, a good number of times till I'm really heartbroken. And then maybe after all this prep work, then I can go back to God. Church, hear me. God does not need your prep work. God does not need your prep work. That's why Jesus died. The chasm between you and God has been bridged by Christ. If you add anything to that, you actually diminish the work of Christ. I'm reminded now of that great song, Come Ye Sinners. We've sung it here a couple times. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. And here, if you tarry, in other words, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. You see, so many of us, especially myself, hold so strongly to this good theology and good biblical doctrine, and that's excellent, and yet so often fail to actually apply that theology and doctrine to ordinary, everyday life. But Paul here, in his exhortation, grounds it in good theology. He says in verses 5 to 9, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, the Judaizers who are trying to persuade and deceive the Galatians, they're saying, you know, well, surely you can't just believe in Jesus. God gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament, didn't he? It was his holy law. As one writer notes, while Paul has told this church that they now belong to the people of God because they've trusted in Jesus and have received the Holy Spirit, the Judaizers, on the other hand, think that unless they get circumcised, they will never be a part of the people of God, ever. That's what they think. As a pastor friend of mine once said, when Jesus sees the broken, he sees the lost. But we often just see losers. And this whole uh, Jewish culture may be hard for us to grasp since it's 2,000 years ago, very far removed from us. But like I said, for them, it was the Jewish law. You know, it was, it was circumcision. For us, it's other things. But at the end of the day, we're both still adding to the gospel. And it's at this point that Paul says, you know, all right, if you, if you want to talk about the history of the Jews, guys, Paul calls him the man of faith. How about Abraham, the patriarch and father of the Jewish people? And it's because this whole passage is a contrast between faith and the law, Christ-reliance versus self-reliance. Now, the Jews would call themselves sons of Abraham since they were his descendants, the people that God chose in the Old Testament to be his own. But Paul knows that Jesus has changed everything. And that's why he says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In other words, it's not the Jews who are the chosen people of God. It is anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. 
Paul even says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. And it is through one of Abraham's offspring, Jesus, who would do this. So Paul is is effectively saying, you think you need the law? Even Abraham was justified before God without the law. It was through his faith. In Romans 4, Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And with that, the argument of the Judaizers is destroyed by Paul because why do we need to keep the law if even Abraham himself was made right before God before the law even existed? If you'll indulge me for a second, I don't want to dive down too deep into the weeds of fancy theological terms, but I also think it's important to have some sort of grasp on them as well. Martin Luther would would call this teaching that Paul has been talking about, um, it was called in Latin, simul justice et peccator, or in English, simultaneously justified and a sinner. Simultaneously justified before God and simultaneously a sinner. How can that be? How can we be acceptable or justified before God if we are sinners? It's not because we have any goodness or righteousness in ourselves. It is because Jesus on the cross gifted us his righteousness, his goodness, so that when we trust in him, even though we still struggle with sin, God views us through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. You know, a lot of us think, you know, Jesus died, he took away our sins. He didn't only, he did that, but he didn't only do that. He gave us his righteousness. He counts us as blameless because when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ applied to us. And that's what Paul is getting at here. That's how Abraham was justified. And that's how we are as well. I remember um, when I used to live in the Middle East, we went on a trip to um, Egypt. I think I told this story in my first sermon. But we went to um, Mount Sinai, or at least what they claim to be Mount Sinai. Who knows if it actually was. Um, but we hiked all the way up to the top um, where Moses um, would have stayed for 40 days. And I remember my dad hauled out the Old Testament and read uh, the Ten Commandments. And I was probably maybe 10 at the time. And he, and he was reading through the, the, all of the Ten Commandments were, at the place where God gave the law to Moses, which I thought was pretty cool. But I wasn't, at a, I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I remember just thinking to myself as he read the Ten Commandments, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not perfect. Nobody says they're perfect. Uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as, you know, those people. Um, so I think, you know, I'll probably go to heaven. That, that, was, my, that was my thinking. My, my, my view of God was basically Santa Claus. Well, I'm all right. I'm not perfect, but, you know, I think I'm good enough. I'll squeeze by. It was only until I became a Christian that I realized that is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. We are all sinners, and it is only 
when we understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, when we understand that, when he was actually crucified, when his death meant and he takes our sins, when we trust in him, he gives us his righteousness. I mean, isn't that incredible? This should be something we should always constantly be rejoicing about. And yet you, me, we're so fickle to forget that because we got our daily lives and our things that we got to do, and we're always busy, and we're doing this and that, and we forget that Jesus died for us. And so all of that to say, we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. I mean, we, we believe all of this when we become a Christian, but it should never leave us. Like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to forget what God has done. We are prone to switch from relying on Christ to relying on ourselves. But finish the verse. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. When we trust in Christ, we are sealed for eternity. We have begun. If we have begun by the Spirit, we will be perfected by the Spirit. As Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so if we can be assured of that, how silly it is to take our eyes off of Christ. I mean, remember the story from the beginning. You may feel that everything's out of control, but God is sovereign and he's in control. And if you stop grasping the gospel, you will start trusting yourself instead of Christ. And like in the story, when you do that in a plane and you ignore the voice on the other end of the radio, it leads to a crash. That's why Proverbs 3 says, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So church, when we get our eyes away from Christ, let's be reminded as Paul reminded the Galatians, let's look to the cross. After all, it was before our eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified because the gospel has long been taught in this church. And so let's not forget that. Don't wait, don't hesitate, don't feel like you're too messy to come to Christ. Rather, when you fall into the same sin that you always sin, look to the cross. Remember Hebrews 5.2, he, Jesus, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Tempted, though, without sin, he was. And so when you're anxious about the future, look to the cross. Young people, when you're concerned with your significance and what others think of you, look to the cross. That's, that's not just a catchphrase. That's a thing to actually do. Look to the cross. When you're left broken by a relationship, when you feel like you have no meaning or purpose, when you're betrayed, when you're wrestling with pride or anger or lust, when you've come to the end of yourself and you realize that you make a pretty lousy God, you can't be God. Well, then don't forget that Jesus died for you. Look to the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and thank you that you died on the cross.
Thank you, Father, for your sacrifice, for your love for us. I pray, God, that we would not be, we would not look away or take our eyes away from you, but we realize that no matter what we are going through in life, you are sovereign, you are in control, and you are able to help us and to strengthen us, and, and God, that we are just weak. We need you. And I pray that you would remind us of that every day. I pray that when we're tempted to take our eyes off of you, you would remind us, God, of the gospel, of your sacrifice, of your suffering, and that all of that was for our sake. So fix our eyes, Lord, on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.